You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing implant dentistry and the mental preparation needed for taking on implant treatment. Our guest is Dr. Zachary Evans, currently an assistant professor in the MUSC Department of Periodontics and director of the Master of Science in Dentistry. He is actively engaged in clinical and basic science research relating to dental implant and CAD-CAM technologies. Dr. Evans, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. So is there some sort of mental checklist that you might suggest for our audience that helps doctors identify if they are mentally prepared for taking on implant treatment and ultimately implant surgeries? Yes, I think there are a lot of kind of considerations when preparing yourself from a mental aspect. I mean, most of all, it's deciding whether or not we're prepared to make a commitment to do surgery in our practices and and everything that comes along with that from an emotional standpoint, but mainly a risk standpoint. So, you know, I'm thinking about our perio residents when they first arrive. Um, They're so green with respect to surgical skills and really fundamentals in terms of theory. So, Um, I think every practitioner needs to come up with a really realistic idea of where they're at in the practice and whether or not they're prepared, mainly for performing surgeries in their office um, and making that leap into into the surgical side of of implants. Um, But that, you know, that involves a lot of things, right? So understanding those fundamental surgical skills, really understanding the the fundamentals of implants themselves, how they work, um, and making sure that, you know, we're prepared for pre- and post-operative case management, and then making sure that we can take those cases on to the restorative phase of treatment as well. Um, But I I think most practitioners that I've encountered that are kind of going through that process, um, when they feel like they're ready, it it is time for them to to jump in. Um, People who are upset or not satisfied with the standard of care they're getting when they're referring their cases out, or they're seeing that as an opportunity to grow their practice or satisfy their patients instead of having to send them out of house. Um, Most of the people that I've worked with uh, to get ready for doing implants in their practice, it seems like if they make that that leap themselves, um, kind of philosophically, that that ultimately they're ready. That leap that you talk about, is that done um, normally when a doctor is working in a practice where he's referring it out, like you said? And then realizes, you know, wait a second, I can probably do this in-house and then gets the additional training. Or is that something that um, someone straight out of a residency program decides I want to do implant surgery as soon as I get started with my practice, whether they have their own practice or working in, in someone else's practice? How does it usually work? Yeah, sure. I think all of those are true. Um, I have, we have first year dental students that come up to us, you know, they, they're starting dental school and they say, I, I want to do implants as soon as I graduate. And I, we have to tamper their expectations a little bit. But you no, know, the other, the other examples you gave were much more realistic. So people coming out of surgical residency, obviously people coming out of, uh, you know, one or two year, uh, AEGD or GPR residencies, you know, they get some surgical uh, experience and a lot of them are ready to, to jump into an associateship or practice management and do implants themselves. Um, but I think the vast majority that I've encountered are those practices that are growing, that are larger, that might be taking on associates, whether it's the um, you know primary doc or the associate themselves that are ready to kind of make that leap. Where yeah, you know they don't want to refer those things out anymore. 
or honestly, and this is coming from me as a, as a periodontist uh, from the surgical perspective of they're not getting the standard of care from the surgeons they're referring to themselves. So they, you know, they see an opportunity to better treat their patients. So all of those are, are definitely um, examples that, I, that I've seen from people looking to expand their scope of care and their practices. Mm -hmm. So when you compare an oral surgery residency to a periodontic residency, is there any difference in the training that the residents get regarding placing implants? Yeah, well, I'm biased um, as a periodontist. So, uh, no, but the reality is that from what I've seen, um, and it's region by region, school by school, but the training programs are pretty comparable. You will find programs that are a little more progressive in terms of um, kind of really focusing on uh, anterior soft tissue aesthetics. Peria may have a little bit of an edge there. Or, you know, on-site preparation such as, you know, large-scale bone grafting. Oral surgery is going to have the edge on that in most cases. Um, but, you know, here at our school at MUSC, the, the implant experience is really divided evenly between periodontics and oral surgery. So they're very, very even. Um, sometimes maybe a little edge for oral surgery just because the program's longer. But, but again, what I see is that they're very comparable. Mm -hmm. And what about endodontics? I'm a retired endodontist. You'd think that, yeah. you know, there would be some trend. We had none, of course, when I was in school in my residency program. But how about now? Is there any implant surgical phase of the uh, procedure in endodontic training, post-doctorate? It seems to be a really hot topic right now for endo training programs to, you know, kind of consider whether or not uh, they should be including that in the training. Um, you know, that, that's something that we discuss at the program here. Uh, I mean, it makes sense, right? So an endodontist sure. is treating a case and uh, treatment is going to be unsuccessful or you confirm a root fracture, whatever the scenario is. And the best course of, of treatment is to take the tooth out and, and to do an implant. So um, I, I'm a big advocate for endodontist learning site preparation. So if the, if the case is not going to be successful endodontically to be able to take the tooth out and at least prepare the site with maybe, you know, ridge augmentation um, or ridge preservation at the same time. And then, you know, it's a, it's a no-brainer really to make the next step. It's, that's going to really come down to, I think, program to program and whether or not the endodontic uh, kind of societies agree. But um, I, I think that implants are going to be something that we're going to see everyone doing. And, mm -hmm. and it's happening already. General dentists, specialists of all types. And, um, you know, the days, and I tell our residents this, the, the days of the surgical specialist being the go-to for implants, uh, those days are numbered, especially if we don't really, really, really make sure that the quality of what we're producing just far exceeds, you know, anything else out there. Um, I, I warn our residents that if they're not producing perfect implant uh, treatment every, every case that you know, they're not going to maintain the referrals in the future because it's so competitive. Years ago, you know, an oral surgeon did it. Um, I guess periodontists were doing it simultaneously with oral surgeons when they first started, or I think in the early stages of implants, it was primarily oral surgeons, right? And then yeah, the days before our traditional, you know, our, our what we have now, the root form implants. When you're talking about the blade implants, kind of blade right. and yeah, you know, subperiosteals. Yeah, oral aggressive, surgery. Yeah. Was, yeah, aggressive oral yeah. surgery was needed. So it's, right. it's, it's a changing world right now. Um, and I do think endodontists should be doing it. I think it fits their wheelhouse very well. You mentioned some of the reasons why a dentist should consider doing an implant, the surgical part. Tell us some reasons why they should not. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that there are kind of right reasons and wrong reasons to jump into implant dentistry in the private practice. So I, I've I've seen a couple of practices where they've been unsuccessful, and I think ultimately what I've learned from that is the wrong reason to me is if if you take a step back and look at your practice and you're not producing, I mean bottom line production, what your expectations are. And your strategy moving forward is, well, you know, maybe I need to produce more by doing more procedures. Um, the, the practices I've seen that that's the underlying motivation have not really been successful. The, the reason I say that is, you know, there is, there is an overhead sort of uh, consideration with doing implants. There's a time commitment learning how to do them. Um, there's a time commitment doing the cases. And um, if, if the expectation is that, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing this highly profitable procedure and that's going to fix my practice that that may backfire. Um, I, I've seen practices heavily invest in CT scanners and implant motors and implant inventory only to to find that, well, the practice wasn't really successful in the first place from a from a patient flow and new patient, um, you know, acceptance kind of standpoint. So to me, the wrong reason is I'm backed into a corner and I'm looking for another source of revenue. Um, however, the, the practices where I've seen that have been really successful are obviously the ones who are saying, you know, they look at the bottom line and say, we're referring out X number of implants per month. We have uh, clinical staff and docs that are comfortable doing minor surgical procedures. Why are we not doing these in-house? Um, and overwhelmingly, I've seen practices be successful in that regard. So, I, you know, I think a general dentistry practice or a group practice, uh, it really makes sense to keep that stuff in-house if, you know, things line up in that respect. Yeah, so if they decide to keep it in-house, obviously it's an advantage to have 3D imaging also in-house, right? Although they could outsource that to a, a radiology center somewhere or a different office. Um, but I guess for the most part, if they really want to commit to implant dentistry, the surgical part, they'd want to have 3D imaging in their office, especially if it's a larger practice. So tell us about some of the things that are involved regarding the commitments to purchasing equipment, overhead, and those kinds of things when establishing uh, an implant practice. Absolutely. So yes, I, I'm a firm believer now. Uh, if you asked me five or 10 years ago, uh, I might have had a different opinion. But um, you know, having access to 3D imaging is, I hate to wor use the word standard of care at this point, but, um, you know, the quality of, of what we can produce is so much more predictable when we have access to 3D imaging. So that's really the, the big commitment if a practice is really going to jump in um, and be all in. And, and I think it's probably the most critical piece of equipment from a diagnostic standpoint, right, having 3D imaging. So, um I think that's an essential part of the puzzle, but but it's a big financial commitment. Um, most people that I see that are looking into doing 3D imaging, um, you know, they, they see the dollar tag on the, the piece of equipment and they get nervous. Um, again, I, I think doing implants, getting into that, as well as kind of all of the adjunctive procedures that come with it, whether it be bone grafting, site preparation, or, or post-operative kind of care, 3D imaging can be a big advantage. Um, but I also have seen practices that have jumped in with the CT scanner 
and it's paid dividends on the back end because they're using it for an overall general diagnostic uh, tool in their practice. So, you know, they're not just doing implant diagnostics. They're they're taking relatively routine low-dose images on all of their patients as opposed to two-dimensional images, right? So, you know, a 3D upper and lower full arch scan uh, as opposed to a pano or even routine periapical radiographs. And um, they're picking up things that have been missed for, for long periods of time. I mean, I, I, probably a third, maybe 25% of the cases that I take a scan on for planning an implant, I find something else that's been previously hmm. undiagnosed. Wow, that's pretty so, hard. yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't think I'm exaggerating there. It's just unbelievable. You know, maxillary first and second molars, um, so hard to detect periapical lesions on those teeth with traditional periapical radiographs. Uh, we just see it all the time under crowns and bridges. Um, and, you know, I hate to say that that's a driver of production, but ultimately it's an advantage for the patient if you catch those things and can treat them. So I think as the years go by here in the near future that, that the CT scanner is going to be more than just a tool that we use to do surgery. It's going to be a more routine diagnostic tool. The wonderful thing is that um, there are a lot of scanners out now. Uh, Plan Mecca makes one. Um, call the Promax Mid. That's one we have. And the dosage of radiation for a full arch low-dose scan is equivalent to taking periapical radiographs or a, or a 2D pan. So, um, you know, I think the day is near when we're going to be transitioning to those 3D images. One of the nice things about Plan Mecca is that they sort of offer a overall platform of technology that works really well together, and that includes the software. So, um, for implants, it's really nice for me because I can take a CT scan with, you know, a Plan Mecca CT scanner. I can use their intraoral scanner, and all of that integrates really nicely in the software. So I can do a diagnostic wax up on the computer, and I can 3D print a surgical guide all from within their their platform. So um, they make great stuff, but I think the the kind of uh, crown jewel from Plan Mecca is the software that they've developed to bring it all together. Um, I, I enjoy using it every day. As far as other commitments from an overhead standpoint, um, you know, there obviously we have to buy implant motors and hand pieces, and we have to think about how much of an implant inventory we're going to commit ourselves to, and what what brands of implants we're going to place. And those questions can be different for a general dentist compared to a specialist, right? So um, I'm at the mercy of the people who refer implants to me. So if you send me one implant system or another, I typically have to place it. But a general dentist has it a little bit easier. They can pick the system they like. Um, but, you know, and then fundamentally, it's it's really kind of coming down to the bottom line of, as well of, of how many implants can I expect to be able to produce through my practice? And does that justify all of this overhead expenditure? And if not, then there are middle grounds. Like you just said, you know, you, you can refer out 3D imaging to begin with. Um, you can work out deals on consignment with your implant companies. So uh, getting in the implant game can, can be a lot easier now than it, than it used to be um, from an overhead standpoint. Right. And some of this equipment is going to come down in price over the next five to 10 years just by, the sheer volume of doctors that are participating in implants, <clears throat> wouldn't you think? Uh, oh, absolutely. 
Um, yes, I agree. And and a lot of company, you know, the, there are so many implant companies out there, and they're so aggressive now that um, you know you can startup deals are are a thing. <laughs> so. You know, ordering a set number of, of implants to start an implant inventory. Usually, you can work with your your dealer rep and and get some things like um, non-guided or guided surgical drill kits and things like that thrown in for free. So uh, they can definitely make it enticing to to jump in. So, I, but yes, the equipment costs are coming down as well. The quality of the technology is improving. The quality of the equipment is improving at the same time. That the cost is coming down. That. To me, that goes for all the way from CT scanners all the way down to implant handpieces to 3D printers and, and things like that if we're going to be using those in, in the implant practice as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think it's a really good time. If you look out in, in the marketplace um, in really any competitive dental area, it's it's just amazing how quickly practices outside of specialists are, are picking up um, implants and doing those in the practice now. And ultimately I think it's good. The, I think, I think we're going to compete against ourselves and that's going to improve the quality of, of care, the standard of care. And at the same time, I think it's going to help manage costs from the patient perspective um, and our perspective when we have to buy these pieces of equipment. Yeah. So, I mean, for the most part, general dentists are doing more implants combined than all the specialists out there, right? Whether it's an oral surgeon, periodontist, um, and that trend should continue just because there's a ton more GPs out there than specialists. In that vein, as it continues, um, we hope that the quality of the GP work is maintained up to a certain level where the success rate of implants continue to be very high. Without a doubt. Um, you know, I don't know where the numbers are right now, but Sometime in the future, if not now, the GPs will be placing more implants than, than specialists. I, I have no doubt about that. The technology that's out there now is allowing us, and, and by us I mean even novice implant users, uh, to to do really, really high quality um, care. And you know, we can talk more about what that means to me. But um, I, I foresee the quality of of implant placement improving as a consequence of more people getting in the game, and maybe I'm optimistic, but um, th then the other way around. I think as surgeons, and I kind of blame ourselves for this, that we've become a little complacent um, when we had a monopoly on on implant placement. The quality kind of is what it is, right? That old philosophy that we learned as residents of, you know, you put the implant where the bone is, and um, you let the restorative dentist worry about restoring it. Those days are gone. Uh, it's it's totally the other way around now, and we're all better off because of it. Right. No, that's a great point. I've heard that from general dentists that are key opinion leaders that have done podcasts and webinars with Viva Learning, that um, they were driven and motivated and incentivized to do their own, the surgical part of implant dentistry because they were getting these implants back, and they were some of them were just unrestorable. So um, not, yeah. you know, not, in, not all the time, but there were enough cases that were coming back where it was such a challenge. Sure. You know, the surgeon was putting the implant, as you say, where the bone is, leaving the general dentist to take care of himself, to take care of him or herself. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the extreme examples, it's non-restorable. But the vast majority of examples, it's it's not that it's non-restorable. It's that the implant placement's not ideal, right? Mm -hmm. It's restorable, right. but it's not ideal. And I think that's kind of where we are maybe at this point. And, and we're really quickly leaving that behind where a general dentist who is placing and restoring his implants 
you know, there, there's no one else to blame but yourself. If, if, if someone has to restore their own implant, I think they're going to be really, really focused on, mm-hmm. on the restorative um, quality, I guess, of the positioning and, and placement of the implant. Right, right. So, yeah, when I, when I said yeah. unrestorable, I meant from the standpoint of aesthetics, function. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, for, the occlusion. It was just the challenges were uh, high to the point where it was just difficult to, to restore. So what are the top three questions doctors ask you in general when you lecture Dr. Evans, and when you teach at the residency program, when that when they're asking you about considering to go into implant dentistry. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's probably two main areas. Um, how do I make this successful financially and from a, a practice management standpoint? And how do I make it successful from a surgical standpoint? So, you know, there are obviously training opportunities all over the place. Um, as far as learning how to do implants, if that's something that, you know, wasn't uh, available during dental school or residency, um, lots of, of good training options out there. Um, from the practice management side, you know, I think it's really important to, you know, I keep saying this, but really look at really look at the fundamentals of the practice and say, does, does the patient flow and case flow justify uh, the, the time and financial commitment that's going to be involved with, with implant therapy. Um, it doesn't have to be a ton of implants. I don't know where the magic number is, but, you know, uh, definitely taking into consideration the total overhead of, of having implants in-house and, and having at least the essential equipment to be able to do it. Um, but from there, I, I think um, dentists can be really successful. Um, and then sky's the limit in terms of questions from there of, of really – beyond the fundamental skills associated with placing implants, you know, how can we do a better job? And and that really kind of segues into a lot of the training that I'm doing now re- relating to kind of digitally designed um, and guided implant surgery. So a lot of people, um, it's really neat, are actually kind of skipping what we kind of considered the fundamental steps of learning how to do implants, which was doing freehand surgery and doing lots of cases like that where, um, you know, the ideal placement may not always be possible because it's impossible with a freehand uh, surgical um, design. But um, I'm seeing general dentists jump right into implants, designing their own cases digitally, and uh, and then placing them in-house, and they're almost skipping that whole intermediate phase that we as surgical specialists sort of thought was, was an essential basic. Um, mm-hmm. So... That's very very interesting. So when a dentist is first beginning their implant journey, what are the kind of cases they should consider doing from the start? And in the same thought process, what are the cases they would be best avoiding? Yeah, sure. Um, So it's probably the same cases that they would consider to be risky from the restorative aspect. So, you know, I don't know that your first implant would be that single unit number eight on the you know, 30-year-old with a high smile on. Um, That's a high-risk case. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I think, um, without a doubt, you know, single-unit posterior implants, premolars, first molars, um, in a a healthy patient, a patient that has relatively ideal occlusion, um, definitely cases where that single unit is is tooth-bound, so there's a tooth in front of it and behind it. If there's sufficient height and width of bone, I mean, those cases are just so predictable and, and easy to do that uh, I wouldn't hesitate to be jumping into cases like that um, in the beginning. Yeah, so you're almost encouraging yeah. doctors to do those cases in the beginning just for the confidence, yeah. just to build the confidence. Yes. 
That, that's right. Uh, kind of learning those fundamentals, just figuring out the, the fundamental flow. Um, there's more to it than just getting in there and drilling. There's, there's preoperative and postoperative management. There's training in terms of staff, um, you know, how to manage these cases, uh, chair side, um, you know, learning how to manage pre and postoperative equipment, uh, you know, cleansing and, and, um, sanitation. So, uh, yeah, an easy case where the chair the chair time is going to be relatively minimal. Um, it's it's low risk. It's going to be relatively easy to restore. Those are great cases to start with. But I, I think I, I've seen a lot of practitioners that get their feet wet with cases like that, and they're really ready quickly to jump into larger you know multi unit cases. Uh, maybe not full arch quite yet, but um, multiple unit fixed uh, implant related cases, even in the anterior, um, especially if they can create a workflow that's really predictable where, uh, you know, they, they can really easily come up with a restorative vision and translate that into the surgical plan, whether it's using guides or working with their lab. Uh, but there are a lot of really, really predictable ways to jump in and make that work. So, um, yeah, I, I think doing a couple easy cases and then, feeling you know feeling it out and then going from there is is a pretty good strategy yeah that makes total sense and uh that's what i would do <laughs> if i was starting it now yeah. as, far, as far as the age level you know do you, is it the younger doctors that are moving more towards placing implants even if they've practiced maybe 10 years in that range um they might have not placed an implant until out on their own and realized, like we talked about earlier, they were sending a lot out or for whatever reason, they want the, to be able to have the case in full control on their side by doing the surgical aspect of it. Or are there doctors that have been practicing for 25 years that have jumped into this? Yeah, I've, I've been really surprised. There, it rained, The entire range is true. I, I think I do see a bias more towards those guys that are, you know, five or 10 years out, they're ready to jump in. Um, I see, you know, I, these younger guys coming out of school and residency, um, you know, they're very eager and they're very open to to learning new skills. So I think this kind of new generation of dentists is going to jump right in. Yeah, so that's However, good. not too long ago, I had a guy who was 80 years old who still practices, and um, he came and talked to me because he wants to start doing implants in wow. his practice. So. That's, that's fantastic. What is the most rewarding aspect of implant treatment? In a former life, before before dental school, I, I got my PhD in immunology, and um, there are some days where, if, if I'm sitting in the chair doing the implant surgery, it just kind of blows my mind that uh, that they work at all. I mean, dental implants are a miracle, right? They fundamentally they shouldn't work. Um, if if you go talk to your orthopedic surgery friend, they're going to think we're crazy that that we put these things in and we essentially leave them exposed to the oral environment, right? They are, they are directly connected to the source of bacteria that can cause their failure um, and infection. So, I mean, it, the most rewarding thing for me is just seeing the case get restored and be successful. Um, you know, obviously, we just love it when we can pull off that really, really nice aesthetic case, you know, uh, that, that eight and nine case with a high smile line. I mean, those cases are so hard to get right, but um, it, it's so rewarding when we can do that. The technology is there um, to pull off those cases predictably, I think, at this point. Um, when everything comes together, 
the entire workflow. Uh, it's just, it's really satisfying. Um, when the patient's happy, we're happy. Uh, implants can be really, really fun to do. Once you get into it and get the success rate you're talking about, I could see how gratifying it is. It's just, it is an amazing thing. What is the uh, success rate of a single tooth implant these days? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, integration success is in the upper, upper 90s um, for healthy patients. So I tell my patients that you have a 98 or 99 percent chance of this, this implant working out uh, in the short term. We have good evidence uh, that's being published long term. You know, I mean, a lot of the technology we use now is, is relatively new. So kind of the jury's out. But it seems like that for implants that are well maintained, um, which to me is a really critical part of, of the implant success kind of formula is making sure that we're doing a good job maintaining them. Um, that at the 10, 15 year mark, um, it's still in the mid to upper 80s in terms of percentile. So for, for cases that are well maintained that we keep an eye on that, that come regularly for maintenance therapy that, um, they have a fantastic prognosis. Um, mm -hmm. so really amazing. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it, it really is amazing. I still think that um, as dentists, you know, we we really do need to focus on on being conservative, right? Um, without but, a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah, mm -hmm. but in, in cases where the restorative option is not going to have a good prognosis, then then yeah, implants they just they just give us such a good alternative. We're we're, we're lucky to be practicing right now for sure. Yeah, so I'd like to thank Dr. Zachary Evans for his insight in, into this podcast. There's a lot of information that was covered. We hope to have you on a podcast soon. Thank you so much. 